You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California has crossed a destructive but familiar milestone. More than two million acres have burned so far this year across the state as we enter what is historically the most destructive months for wildfires. The Dixie Fire, spanning five counties surrounding Lassen National Park, is currently more than 900,000 acres, rivaling the largest wildfire in state history, the August Complex Fire, which happened just last summer. In fact, six of the top 10 largest wildfires in California happened within pretty much the last year. Crystal Cole is a professor of fire science at UC Merced. She joins us with some of the reasons wildfires are getting larger, lasting longer, and becoming more destructive, as well as explaining some solutions that are being discussed and being applied. Welcome to Insight, Dr. Colden. Thank you for having me. You know, we really can take this discussion on, in so many different roads. Um, but first, I, I really like your if you can just explain what a pyrogeographer is. I mean, I had to do some background myself on that title. Yeah, so I am trained as a geographer. My graduate degrees are in geography, which is really the study of Earth as a whole. And so I look at how fire functions uh, very holistically, not just as a, a natural process, but how we humans interact with it. You also have a background as a wildland firefighter. I'm just curious what led to the transition to to researching wildfire in the realm of human-caused climate change. Uh, yeah, well, I, I often say, uh, let's be honest, I was not a very good firefighter. Um, I am not athletically inclined at all, and, and that is incredibly difficult work. Um, but what I really got interested in was trying to understand what I was seeing uh, on the landscape and why we were fighting fires in some of the most remote places uh, in the U.S. that I knew had adapted to fire that had evolved with fire. Um, and so 20 years ago, I made the switch and started studying how we could uh, better understand fire so that we could prevent the types of disasters that we're seeing today. Yeah. And I would just imagine the job of a wildland firefighter has evolved drastically as well as wildfires grow in size and, and, and destruction across the state or the West. Absolutely. It's a job that uh, used to be pretty well confined to only the, the peak wildfire season, mostly in midsummer, sometimes into later fall uh, in places like Southern California. And it was also a job that was mostly in uh, relatively rural and, and wilderness-like areas, um, particularly for Forest Service firefighters. Uh, they rarely actually had to worry about houses 20, 30 years years ago. Um, but now what we see is increasingly our wildfires are occurring more and more in sort of these uh, semi-rural and even close to suburban areas. Um, and the job has really started to focus a lot more on how do we save lives and save homes. Um, and that has been, I think, a real shift for a lot of our wildland firefighters. Uh, and it's something that has taken an enormous emotional and psychological toll on them because for many firefighters, what has always been a key driver is feeling successful, feeling like they saved homes, feeling like they stopped a wildfire from doing further damage. Um, and they're not being as successful anymore because these fires are so much more challenging, uh, so much more destructive. 
That's so important that you say that because I'm just reminded of a conversation I had with a battalion chief about a month or two ago and and learning that you have to feeling like you have to lose sometimes. And that's so difficult as a firefighter, especially one with I believe he's been a firefighter for 35 years. And so it's changed drastically. It has. And, you know, there are many uh, analogies and crossovers between firefighting and the military. Um, their firefighting actually use, utilizes a command structure that is uh, similar to what the military uses. There's a lot of training and tactics that are similar to the military. Um, and imagine fighting a war where you just constantly lose. It's incredibly demoralizing. Uh, and it has impacted so many of our firefighters to the point where there's now almost a crisis of mental health um, among seasonal wildfires, wildfire fighters. Yeah, and, and we're having this conversation as, you know, the Dixie Fire ignited nearly two months ago and is 58% contained. You had the Caldor Fire, which is more than 200,000 acres as of this morning, started three weeks ago and is 48% contained. You know, as a pyrogeographer and a fire scientist, how are, what stands out to you about these what are two largest wildfires that we're still battling across California? Yeah, what's been really uh, noticeable about the fires this year, particularly the Dixie Fire and the Caldor Fire, is that they both burned uh, up and over the top of the Sierra Nevada crest, um, which there had never been a modern fire that burned over an entire mountain range until last summer when the East Troublesome Fire uh, burned over the Rockies in Colorado. And this year we had not not just the first, but also the second large wildfire to burn up and over the Sierra Nevada crest, um, which when the Caldor fire started, uh, I myself didn't think it would actually make it up and over the top. And so it's been really um, sort of very interesting as a scientist to try and look at, okay, what are the factors that we're seeing that are helping this fire burn uh, so rapidly and evade containment? Um, And both of these fires have uh, really been been a challenge for firefighters in the old tactics that used to work really successfully just aren't working anymore. Yeah, and especially with the Caldor Fire, as you mentioned, I mean, Echo Summit was believed to almost be kind of like a natural barrier to the wildfire's progression. It actually crossed over the Sierra Nevada, as you just said, and now also with the Dixie Fire as well, both in the same month. What changed for, for both of these to happen for the first time in California history? Yeah, so there's a lot of contributing factors to this, but chief is climate change. Um, and for you know, for anyone that's sort of paying attention in California, we're well aware of the impacts of climate change on our state uh, because it has really produced uh, numerous intense heat waves this summer. Of course, we're smack in the middle of a very severe drought um, that is actually impacting Northern California much more severely than Southern California. Uh, and what What climate change has done and facilitated both last year's large fires and this year's large fires is that it is drying out our fuels, our vegetation, uh, much earlier in the year. And part of what we're looking at with these two fires that summited the Sierra uh, is that we lost our snowpack in the Sierra very early this year. Uh, By the first part of May, there was very little snowpack anywhere, even in some 
of the highest parts of the Sierra Nevada. Uh, and that's incredibly unusual because normally we've got snowpack well into July in a lot of parts of the Sierra. Um, so those warmer conditions in spring uh, really help that snowpack melt early. And then that was followed by several heat waves uh, in June and July that just dried out the ground dried out all of the fuel, both the dead sticks and uh, down trees, and then the live standing vegetation as well, those trees and shrubs um, that fuel those fires. And it's also been very much a function of these warmer nights. One of the things that we watch really closely with wildfires is how warm it is at night. Because nighttime is when that vegetation uh, recovers some of its moisture. Uh, and so in historically, we had seen that at nighttime, fire behavior tended to die down. The, the dew point came up, we had the humidity come up, um, and basically that uh, reduced the fire behavior. And oftentimes, uh, crews were able to move in and directly attack a fire safely uh, and really move forward in containment. And what we've seen in the last few years, and absolutely this year, is that these fires are burning incredibly efficiently and actively at night. There's no break. There is no moment when the firefighters say, okay, it's dying down a little bit. We th I think we can get in there. Um, and instead, they are the, the fires are chewing up uh, you know, large areas at night that, that they historically would not have done very, very much at all. Um, so that has really driven the increase in size and the difficulty in containing these fires. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're talking with fire scientist Crystal Colden with UC Merced about why wildfires are growing larger, lasting longer, and growing more destructive. You know, I follow you on Twitter, and I want to, to read one of your recent tweets. Um, you wrote, every time I see someone asking why the firefighters aren't stopping a wildfire, I'd love to know if they also ask why Noah isn't stopping hurricanes and tornadoes and floods. We'll always have ignitions. Suppression is just a response, and now it's just much less effective. So are we thinking about wildfires and how to respond incorrectly? I believe we are. Um, and the reason is very much historical. Uh, for over 100 years, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, when it was a fledgling agency in 1910, basically said, OK, Congress, uh, give us our budget. And our number one job is going to be to put out wildfires. Um, and that legacy has basically brought us to this moment today where we still feel like we can control wildfire, right? And it's a function of uh, wanting to control ignitions. And, you know, what I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand is that we've actually gotten very good at reducing ignitions. Uh, the number of uh, wildfire starts that used to happen from people throwing cigarettes out the window or uh, having sparks come off of their machinery as they worked in the woods or leaving campfires burning when they left their campsite. We have really drastically reduced the number of ignitions. And in the last couple of years, we've actually been at all time lows for number of wildfires that start. Um, but most of those wildfires, we still put out very successfully when they're tiny. It's that very, very small percent that take off and grow large and are difficult to contain. Um, and what we have done is tried to keep containing them instead of saying, okay, we need to look at this as 
a disaster response instead of just stopping wildfires because we approach things very differently. When you look at just what just happened uh, last week with Hurricane Ida uh, moving through the south, the response was very different. The goal was to understand where the hurricane was going to go, evacuate people out of the highest risk areas very, very quickly, uh, and then move into in the aftermath of the hurricane to recovery. Um, and there was no discussion about sort of stopping the hurricane overall. Instead, what cities like New Orleans have done is they have built these really impressive flood control structures that protect the city. So we saw pictures of things like the flood walls being closed. And we have uh, activities like that for wildfire. We have mitigative measures, but we don't use them enough. And we don't look at wildfires as, okay, we need to just protect our communities and be less concerned about the fire burning more broadly. Um, and that sort of alternative framework for looking at fires is something that the disaster risk scientists have looked at for a long time and said, okay, we've, we've figured out how to actually look at these things in a way that we can reduce disaster risk instead of just trying to prevent this from happening in the first place. So we sort of need to take a page from their book. And it's so interesting when you look across the country how kind of uneven or different the approach to, to wildfires and mitigation and prevention is. I mean, I don't think a lot of people would realize that the Southeast has prescribed fire operations going back decades. I, I remember reading like Florida leads the country in controlled burns. So how or why is the culture and the approach surrounding wildfire different in the Southeast compared to here in the West? Yeah, and again, it's very much a cultural legacy. Um, the Southeast began using prescribed fire in earnest, uh, not until after the turn of the 20th century. Um, they, too, uh, really suppressed most of their fires uh, into the late 19th and early 20th century. But then there were a couple of key discoveries that they made. Um, one is that the timber industry in the southeastern part of the U.S. Uh, is highly dependent on a single species, and that species is called longleaf pine. Um, and Longleaf pine is actually surprisingly similar to our ubiquitous pine uh, in California in the Sierra Nevada, which is our ponderosa pine. Um, and these are species that they are adapted to fire. They evolved with it. In fact, they grow better with frequent low intensity burns. So the timber industry said, oh, well, we need to start burning in these areas so that we can increase our productivity and keep our forests healthier and keep wildfire out. Um, the other thing that happened was that in the 30s and 40s, they figured out that there were some key uh, species that um, hunters liked, uh, particularly upland uh, birds that they were really interested in hunting. And they saw these populations declining dramatically and realized that by using controlled burns, they could actually improve the habitat for those species. Uh, so it supported their hunting culture to do these types of controlled burns. And today what we have is across the Southeast, uh, they burn over 5 million acres a year, most of that in Florida and Georgia, but across the, the Southeast really. Um, and it's a really different approach. They do an enormous amount of proactive burning. They get out ahead of the fire season uh, and remove a lot of that fuel because of course it grows really fast in the Southeast, right? It doesn't get so cold down there. They've got a lot of rain. So it grows back every year. And they know if they burn it out, then they won't have to work 
excuse me, they won't have to worry as much about wildfires. Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's been going for so many decades now that it's just expected. It's culturally accepted. It's expected. They know how to deal with the smoke uh, and the cultures that people say, okay, this is what we need to do. And I know that there are larger conversations about controlled burns here in California. We've had segments on that as well here on Insight. But last month, the Forest Service announced it was suspending controlled burns in California due to the demand of responding to these these large mega fires. But if we're already behind this type of proactive work, what are the long term consequences down the road? Yeah, so the lack of controlled burning coupled with our uh, century-long, very effective fire suppression campaign is the other major factor driving these incredibly large fires that are so destructive. Uh, Because what has happened is that we've dramatically increased the amount of fuel in these forests. Um, And what we've seen is that we already knew that the density of trees was increasing, that the amount amount of brush in the understory so that you can't even see through the forest was increasing. Uh, And with the drought, uh, for the five-year drought from 2012 to 2017, and then now we're back into another drought with incredible heat, it dries out all that fuel. It kills a lot of those trees, um, and it makes it so that there is a much higher, multiple times higher uh, amount of fuel available in these forests. Essentially, instead of having uh, the conditions for campfires, now we've got conditions for bonfires every single time a new fire starts because there's just so much more fuel and it's so much drier and ready to burn. Um, And so we're behind and we need to do more controlled burning and it's sort of overcoming that that lack of inertia in this area where we really need to stop and, and not worry so much about the fact that we're behind and just start burning and trying to change the culture because there are a lot of discussions about why we can't do more burning, right? Uh, there's smoke issues. Oh, it's, it's too dangerous. We can't do these sorts of things. But every time that we put barriers up and say we can't get this done, we're kicking the can down the road and it's going to only just simply fuel another large destructive wildfire like the ones we've seen last summer and this summer. And has the state taken a larger role or, or, yeah, a larger role when it comes to cultural burning, actually using, you know, burning as a a tool, you know, and, and going alongside Native American tribes in our state? Yeah, so that, that's been a key challenge is actually trying to figure out um, how to uh, support and empower the indigenous people in our state who you know, have continued burning despite all of the, the challenges that they have faced over the last uh, century and a half. Um, and there are several tribes in the state that have very strong burning cultures and want to actually burn more. And they've run into a lot of barriers uh, in terms of state policy and some of the challenges of uh, differential land ownership, right? It's their homeland. They understand how to burn it, uh, but today it is technically under the ownership of the Forest Service or other types of private or state ownerships. Um, Something that was really encouraging is that last week uh, the House uh, passed two bills uh, that are going to help solve this problem. They were already passed in the Senate, so now they are going to Governor Newsom's desk uh, for signature, and we're all fingers crossed (laughs) that he signs them very quickly. Um, And both of these bills are specific designed to uh, facilitate more prescribed fire 
right? So allowing the state uh, and the private citizens to do more prescribed fire without having to worry as much about the risk. Uh, and then also specifically to help empower more indigenous birding. We know it works, right? This is a centuries or actually millennia old approach, uh, indigenous cultural fire to keeping these forests healthy. Uh, and so we know it works and that some of the barriers, the policy barriers are being alleviated by these two bills. Um, so it's really promising going forward and it is really helping to change the culture um, because culture is a product of both ground up, what people see, what they're used to, and top down how the state approaches this from a policy perspective. Yeah, another topic for debate is when it comes to wooey zones, wildland urban interface zones and individual responsibility, should people be allowed to live in fire prone places? Yeah, that's a question that uh, a lot of people ask when they see houses burning and some of these really dense forest areas and, oh, you know, people shouldn't even be able to live there. That would solve the problem, right? Um, And the reality is that uh, that is the type of question that, again, showcases how we look at fire very differently from other natural hazards. Um, This is a state of 40 million people, and uh, at least half of those 40 million people live on or near a large earthquake fault uh, in San Francisco, in the whole Los Angeles, Southern California area. Um, And those fault lines when they've ruptured in the past have been incredibly destructive, right? So why do we still allow people to live there? Um, And in fact, build skyscrapers in these areas? Well, we figured out how to engineer mitigation measures, right? We understand how earthquakes function. And so we're able to mitigate that. People live along the coast of California, some of the most expensive real estate in the country, even though we get tsunamis um, and sea level rise is beginning to impact our coastal regions. And we're not suggesting that anyone moves away from there. We're saying, okay, we can engineer solutions. Uh, And we need to do the same for wildfire because for so many people, in a state that has one of the highest costs of living in the country, where we already have a housing shortage that has produced a crisis in this state, uh, suggesting that the people who have moved to a lot of these rural areas because they can't afford to live anywhere else, that they shouldn't be able to live there anymore, where are they going to go? Um, you know, that that is sort of the, the challenge. And, and again, you know, we have a large indigenous population in this state that has already been removed from so much of their homelands. And they are the people also who live in these rural fire prone areas. Um, I, for one, don't find it very uh, justified to suggest that indigenous people be removed yet again from their homelands and not allowed to live there uh, because, you know, it's a fire prone area, especially when they actually know how to mitigate a lot of that danger. So, you know, fire is something that we can mitigate. There's a lot of elements of natural disasters that are tough to mitigate, but because fire requires fuel, And its behavior changes when we modify those fuels, we can actually figure out how to mitigate wildfire disasters successfully so that we can continue living in the places uh, that people have lived for centuries and millennia. Well, finally, before I let you go, Crystal, um, what are you focusing on in the weeks and months ahead? I mean, we're still in wildfire season, which is pretty much year round now. Yeah, so my group at UC Merced um, is really working on this issue of vulnerable populations, because one of the things that has really been demonstrated in the last 10 years, uh, particularly that 
we never saw um, in earlier decades is that now we've got fire fatalities, right? Um, and then the great tragedy of the 2018 campfire, 85 people dead, um, you know, that is the sort of thing that we don't want to see again. And most of the people that were killed were vulnerable, right? They were either um, elderly or disabled um, or older people that just didn't have a means of evacuating from that fire quickly. And that's a vulnerable population. And so part of what we're really understanding now is how do we specifically focus on supporting those most vulnerable populations so that they are not dying at a higher rate or preferably not dying at all in wildfires, um, but so that they have the resources to mitigate uh, through some of the, the social support systems that we can enact. Crystal, thanks so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me today. Crystal Colden is a professor of fire science at UC Merced.